Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello there. Welcome along to the Huddle Breakdown. Endicall here along with Juco James and Alan Morrison. How are we doing, folks? All right. Well, thank you. Yeah, a week off. Nothing to complain about this week. It's good. Exactly. People will be rejoicing. <laughs> we are not doing any complaining about Celtic. Well, we might do a little bit of complaining about Celtic. <laughs> we don't have a game to analyze on this week's show. So we, we're doing what we've threatened to do for the last about four or five months at least. We're going to do a Q&A style show. So uh, on Twitter, uh, at Huddle Breakdown, we asked you to send us in some of your questions. So we have a fair few of them coming in, in on Twitter. Thanks to everyone who did send in questions. And if you do want us to co- cover something else on another show, do send us some questions on Twitter as well. And uh, we'll try to get to as many as we can in the next hour or so. If you're watching on YouTube or you're watching on Twitch or you're listening to us for the first time, hit the subscribe button. You'll get notified every time a new podcast or a new video is live. And we, you know, you just get free content every single week. So we'll start with the questions that came in. I want to start with a very simple one that came in. And it's it's a very, it's it's a controversial one. It's one that always comes up. Um, is a Jaffa cake a biscuit or is it a cake? <laughs> now, James, I'm not sure if you guys have Jaffa cakes in the US, but it is basically this small circular uh I'll, we'll we'll call it a biscuit for now because just for handiness sake, it it's cake on the bottom. It's got a chocolate covering and it's got a little orange sort of gelatin uh, bit inside of it. The answer to this is a cake. A Jaffa cake is a cake, and the reason it is a cake, if you leave a cake out, so if you leave a Jaffa cake outside without uh, any coverings on, it goes hard. If you do that with a biscuit, it goes soft. It goes soggy. So that is the answer to the most controversial question that came in. And surprisingly enough, we're, we're, we're a Celtic podcast. For that to be the most controversial question to come in, I think we're doing pretty well. See you next week. Whatever you call it, I have had uh, those, and I'm, I'm not a fan. So I don't care what you call it. No, thank you. Well, that, that's, even, that's even more controversial than the, the even with a, Even with a cup of tea, the orange part of it puts me uh. off. Oh, come on. Right. We'll start off with the actual questions here. Michael Nolan, who is a regular listener to the show, he always tweets this as well. So thank you, Michael, for sending in this question. He says that surely before, for, surely we knew before the window closed that an injury to McGregor would be a problem, question mark. I'm going to change his phrasing of the next part. Is that not why Halliday tried to do him in? Um, says Michael. 
I think that's a pretty pretty obvious one. That is one that we have touched on last week on the podcast, but I guess we'll throw it out to the crowd again. Not only do we risk McGregor pulling a hamstring or getting a muscle tear, our team's going to target him now, I guess, is what Michael is asking. Well, uh, a trip through Andy Halliday's head would be a very short and fruitless journey, I have to say. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not sure what he was thinking. <laughs> When he went into McGregor, but yeah, maybe that was part of it. Listen, I think you know, if we said the the midfield is in quite a state when you think about the way that Celtic and Apostolic want to play, and the and the actual resources that we have at our disposal. Um, if you think the system is going to be like a a, a six, which is more of a, a six in the sort of regista, if I can use a nice hipster phrase, of the sort of deep line playmaker style of player. And then two number eights, and by number eights we mean more sort of box-to-box, multi-functional players that can break up attacks, but also get into the box, have shots, etc. <clears throat> if you think about that, that's obviously the way that we've played hitherto. Um, you, McGregor is really good in that number six position, um, and probably more effective there even than, than as an eight. But I think he can probably do both. Um, and there really isn't anyone else who naturally. Uh, in the central midfield plays that role. You've got Turnbull, who arguably can be that eight, but he seems to struggle when the pace of the opposition and the intensity of the game and the standard of the game increases. Uh, and, and he may be more comfortable as a 10, which is more of a forward position behind a striker, m- more focused on cr- the creative aspects and getting shots away than doing some of the midfield donkey work that an eight would do. Rogic clearly has always been a, He's a he's a classic seventies throwback to what a ten a ten was a fairly a player who's really not that interested in the physical side of the game really wants to get on the ball and and do creative stuff with it and then you've got McCarthy who's more of a Scott Brown type of six which is not that deep line playmaker more that 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 first line of 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 last defence if you like in front of the back four breaking play up and just keeping the game very simple. So those are the players we've got, but actually what we need is we need players, dare I say it, a little bit like Ryan Christie in the 2-8 positions, energy, aggression, um, a bit of pace, got a goal threat, can, loves the challenge. You need two of those and then a McGregor type. So we're just massively exposed. And then beyond those players, uh, we've got um, essentially uh, kids really yeah. and that's it so it's just it's just a huge problem i think or risk should i say for the for the rest of the uh, the season hmm. can i ask a follow on question before you come in here james you might be able to answer this for me outside of james mccarthy do we have enough assholes in our midfield do we have enough players who are going to sort of give as good as they get to in order to ensure that people who try and do cal mcgregor are equally get it equally uh, a hard tackle back we cannot hear you james that's my dog barking sensor as usual apologies um <laughs> so uh, uh, un- unsurprisingly uh, to you i have a bit of a contrarian view on that I think given the relative disparity in in Celtics quality versus most of the league getting dragged down into that kind of physicality and, you know, tit for tat type of stuff is more about theater than being smart. And, um, 
you know, doing what's best competitively to try and win matches. Um, so, you know, it, 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 if you can dance like a butterfly and sting like a bee, like uh, Cassius Clay could when he first uh, became heavyweight champion, you know, you don't go toe to toe and just sit there and get pummeled to do it. I mean, you, you use your athleticism, you use your pace, you use your skill level, and you make that the weapons that you deploy. Um, so, I, I mean, there, there's obviously a balance to strike. Um, to, to kind of segue off of one of Alan's comments, I think one of our challenges is that we have some what I'll call tweeners. Um, so I, I see David Turnbull as a tweener. I don't think he really suits as an eight, a box-to-box eight. Um, but I also don't think he necessarily at this point anyway, maybe he develops into it, but Alan and I've talked about this over the last uh, almost year now is that, you know, it's a bit of a mixed record as far as him as a 10. Um, so it's almost situational, you know, he's a tweener. He's kind of stuck in between those two. And, uh, as, as I continue to talk about this kind of concept of optimization and when you optimize a system, you have pieces that fit together in an optimized way. And when you have tweeners, that's harder to do. And, you know, if all things being equal, if McGregor was three inches taller, 20 pounds heavier, um, and a little bit more aggressive in, in the tackle, then he'd be almost perfect in that position. You know, he could handle the, 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 uh, the, the ball progression, the, the breaking of the pet press, as well as kind of doing a good enough job as, you know, like a 28-year-old or a 30-year-old Scott Brown did in breaking up play. Um, so it's it's really about picking the relative weaknesses and strengths and and how they're going to fit together and complement each other or expose each other, in my mind. And um, I think that's, that's yet to be determined. And I think it's going to be situational depending on how opponents decide to set up against us. Um, I think that there's the conscious decision to go after a player, which, you know, for the most part, I think is not all that common. You know, there's certainly players that are like that, that'll try to go out and hurt people. But I think for the most part, that's, you know, less common. I think my big, my bigger concern is how the Scottish league is officiated in general, which is, Mm. I did a thread on this a while back is, um, you know, normally in uh, pyramids, the top league in a, in a country will have the lowest fouling rate, the lowest yellow card rate. And then they go up as you go down. Like, you know, Syria C has like 30% more fouls and yellow cards than Syria. Right. So that makes sense. And if you go through uh, Portugal, you go through Spain, you go through Germany, there are a little bit of variation, but for, for the most part, that sequencing and it makes sense. You know, they're better players at the higher level and they play a more technical, sophisticated style of game. So that all kind of makes sense. Well, if you teleport into the UK, uh, that doesn't hold up. So the Premier League in in uh, in England or the Premiership in Scotland actually have higher rates of fouling being called than, let's say, League Two uh, or, or uh, Yellow Cards, for example, which... You know, to me, that's a cultural issue as far as how the game is officiated and how much physicality and we talk about it all the time, you know, uh, how much physicality is let go, how much players, creative players aren't protected with some of these just vicious tackles. Um, So I I would be concerned about that in general as Mm. as because of our risk and exposure of of uh, of McGregor. And I'm not sure which is worse in that sense. I mean, I don't know if him playing that central six 
is going to make him more likely to get hammered more. I suspect, suspect probably not. Um, whereas maybe in that box to box role might be a little bit more susceptible to violent collisions, shall we say. Um, and then the other part of all this is just a general risk that all the clubs are going to have to deal with is COVID still. Um, so I think we've seen now that uh, vaccines are not uh, kind of universal, hundred percent, and um, you know, so there's a scenario where some of our best players are out for a week or two with COVID, um, as we've seen already with other clubs. So, you know, that that's uh, the, the 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 scenario where we lose McGregor for a week or two. I think we could live with, depending on who the opposition are during that stretch of games. Um, you know, any other kind of long-term injury, I think, would be a big, big problem. Yeah, there's a lot in that, especially the refereeing thing, because that used to be a massive thing, particularly in the Champions League discussion around referees, was the physicality of the Premier League compared to the way that European competitions were officiated, that it is, it is different. I think that's narrowing a little bit, but officiating it on the island of Britain in general is, is really, really poor. And you can that's reflected in the amount of British referees that are selected for the highest games, the biggest games in the World Cup and the European competitions and the Champions League final. I know there's a couple of high-profile English ones, but outside of that, it's a very, very select few that actually make it to the high, highest level. So officiating is something that needs to be certainly looked at in Scotland and, and beyond. There are a good few questions about the defence that I might throw together at the end because that's probably going to take up the most uh, length in terms of discussion so we'll move on to a question that came in from Christoforo on Twitter saying that Ainz admitted that Kyogo's best uh, position is central following the derby so how will he accommodate both him and Giacomacus it doesn't make sense to have a rotation option in Giacomacus who appear, appears to have a quite uh, different playing style to the first choice so essentially what he's asking is is Giacomacos going to be playing alongside Kyogo? And um, if he's not, is the game plan going to change when Giacomacos is there instead of Kyogo? Well, that's going to be quite a shift if we suddenly go to two up top and, and actually go two up top with the only two strikers that we've got in the squad that the manager actually wants to play. <laughs> that's That would seem very unlikely. So to me, common sense suggests that you know he'll continue to play roughly the system he's playing and it'll be one of one of two um but you know Kyogo is um a high intent very high intensity player in terms of the just the sheer effort he puts into the game he's tended to come off around the 60 to 70 minute mark in most games he's obviously been on the receiving end of sort of violence in virtually every game he's played not just in Scotland um, so, you know, I don't think uh, Giacomacus is going to be short of minutes. He's he's a similar player in the sense of the level of intensity and work rate that he will bring to the game. So I suspect both of them will see significant minutes as a single striker. And the rest of it really comes down to what the, the very point that James made is how do you fit the, the, the jigsaw pieces together around that to make it coherent? And, you know, if you assume that, that um, you know, Kyogo won't be on the left, which may be a, something that happens occasionally, and, and actually he does he does well there because he's a good player, um, probably not something we're going to see a lot of, then you're left with, okay, well, if, if Forrest isn't fit, then it's Jota. Jota's not played that many games of professional football, really. Uh, we have, you know, how long is he going to take to adjust to Scottish football? Uh, and then you're down to Adam Montgomery. 
<laughs> and that's where we are. Uh, again, you know, these are all risks that could come to fruition with an injury or somebody losing form or Jota not adapting. And suddenly you're going, well, how do I make this puzzle fit? Because actually I don't have the right pieces for this to be a coherent system. The question that I would ask in relation to Giacomacus is I think Boys Analytics did quite a bit of this on his Twitter in terms of the type of goals he scores. A lot of them are from high crosses. We seem to have been working on low crosses, low crosses across the six yard box and pullbacks to the center, uh, the, the penalty spot so far this season. So James, how does that pair into what Giacomacus does in terms of his aerial ability, do we change our game plan when he's on when he's on the pitch, or is is it same old story with him? I, I generally agree with Alan in that um, I, th- there's there's such different players. I I, I don't think um, Giamakis is in the same neighborhood as Kyogo as far as quality and what I've looked at and the analysis I've done. Um, you know, it, it, it it's um, pertaining specifically to your question and uh, that kind of segues into one of the questions I have about how other teams are going to kind of set up against us. So I I see two, um, two very distinct strategies that aren't earth shattering, but I see vulnerabilities for Celtic that both of them could look to capitalize on. One is the high press, um, aggressive high press, but not all the teams have the quality and the athleticism and being coached well enough to do that and to really come at us in our defensive third and, and not get absolutely ripped apart, um, particularly at, at Celtic Park. Um, but I do think some will try it. And there are some that are, you know, like a Hibs might be a l- good enough to give us some real troubles in that regard. Um, Rangers, if they decided to go that route, even though we've talked about that's probably not how they would do it. Um, the other one is to just bunker in, close down that space. And to me, that would be the way to try and uh, dilute some of the impact of Kyoko, meaning that one of his great strengths is using that space to run off uh, the center backs. And if they're camped in at their own 18, there's not a lot of space for him to do that. Uh, so if you're going to park the bus, compress space, um, I could see Jamakis uh, being a, a, an alternative if we conf- are confronted with those kind of bunkering um, opposition where some of those high crosses could be a way of mixing it up uh, and, and trying to break teams down. Um, so th- that's one way I could see it happening, whether that's within a game and changing it up. Uh, the other part of this is that Kyogo has already played a lot this year coming from Japan. There's, you know, he came to us mid season. Uh, he's also been on international duty. He's going to be coming back from Japan probably today. I think he, um, he, he sorry, James, he, he limped off today. He got substituted in 50. He went, he went off injured. Oh, for so, 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 you know, that. we're already potentially looking at one of these risks becoming a, a massive issue. Right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I didn't know for that. Listeners right. of the podcast. Uh, if you, that weird noise you heard was James banging his head off his mic. Yeah. Um, Okay, well, that's great news. Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't know any more than that, right? Yeah, you, you yeah, kind of limped off. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, it's just a knock, but it could, um, be, a, it could be a bang. You know, impact. Yeah, but again, that comes back to. I mean, he's already played quite a bit this this season, and the idea that he's just going to go straight through from 
basically, let's say late January when the J League starts, I think early February, I'm not sure exactly when that is, or very early in the year and stretch out basically to a 15 month season and play in what could be 70 to 80 games over that stretch, I think is probably not realistic. Um, even if he goes through that without getting any significant injuries. So there's going to have to be rotation. We're playing across four competitions. Um, you know, so there's going to be minutes for, for Giamakis, I think, within that, you know, playing in early yeah. League Cup, where we play Wraith, I think, coming up in the, the League Cup. I mean, that could be a game, those kind of things. So um, so I, I can see in Juranovic, Dr- uh, one of the things that I saw when I looked at him before they were before he was signed, when he was rumored, was he is actually pretty good at those kind of early deep crosses, you know, almost like a Barisic or a Tavernier. Um uh, and he actually comped with Tavernier quite well in that regard in, in um, the analysis that I had done. So we have at least one uh, fullback that seems like he could deliver those balls to a, to a striker that's adept at uh, attacking them. Um, so that, that's kind of how I would think about it. But, I, you know, he, I just I don't see him being in the neighborhood as far as quality. So I, I would be surprised if we end up where in any big games – um, Kyogo would be on the left and, uh, and Giamakis, I, I, I'll, I'll struggle with that until I die. Giamakis, um, is, is, uh, you know, kind of the preferred number nine. Yeah. Mm. So I, yeah, I think it's a good option to have at least. And, but, but I think my, my serious questions around Giamakis is why did he explode in their divisa last year? And can we recreate those conditions? Can he recreate those conditions? Was it form or was it quality? And I think we'll learn over the next couple of weeks whether uh, w- what uh, situation it was that led to him scoring so many goals in Eredivisie and why he wasn't snapped up by a club as soon as uh, Vivi Venlo got uh, relegated from it. So it's it, it's an interesting time at Celtic. We're seeing a lot of faces. So I'm I'm always willing to give them an opportunity to to prove themselves. So I, I think two to three weeks will will soon begin to see what his role is going to be within the side. There are a good few um, big games coming up, mainly in the Europa League over the next couple of weeks. And one of these one of the questions coming in from Paul Smith is that with the step up in class in the Europa League, will we see pragmatism from Ange, and can we get out of the group for those who haven't seen the group stage or forgot what the group stage is? Is Real Betis? Bayer Leverkusen, and it is uh, Frank Faro's, a return to Frank Faro's Celtic's old enemies. Three green and white sides in the in the Europa League, but three very difficult sides as well. Two mainly very strong sides, and then Frank Faro's, who I think we hope we can beat second time around. Um, so, pragmatism from Ange, is that something we're going to see, or are we going to see more go for the gut like we saw against AZ in the playoffs. Yeah, so I, I, I think he probably has displayed a little bit more pragmatism than I expected already. Um, I think it's also very difficult to be too overly judgmental at this stage given the resources he's had to juggle. So he's, he's had to make um, you know selections and I think I, Ibrox was a perfect example of that, having to make selections to work around the available resources. My reading of Postacoglu is that he will be telling that Celtic team, and I don't care how you know bereft and under-equipped the squad is, he'll be telling the players that are there today, we're entering this competition to win it. That will be his attitude. 
And you might say, well, all professional teams uh, will, will adopt that attitude. But, but, you know, some will be thinking, look, this is the guys are targets like, you know, six points, win all the home games, right? That that that, that could be a target. Or a target is, you know, we absolutely finish third and we, we get to the next stage or what have you. I believe his his mentality will be to start from the position that we enter this to win it. And then he he goes he goes he goes from that basis onwards. No, <laughs> and, and 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 actually, you know, can he get those players to overperform in those games? So I don't believe his attitude, or the attitude that he will instill in the players, will be, oh, you know, we've we've made our Europa money for the for the year. It's a free hit. We'll concentrate on the league. I, I just don't get. I just don't. I do not buy that that Postecoglou will 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 be playing playing getting the team to play in that way. Having said all that, you know the teams. Two of the teams certainly that we're playing in Leverkusen and Betis are, are exceptionally good sides. They're, they're realistically going to be, um, you know, probably several levels above. Unfortunately, you know where we are at this point in time. Um, you know, Leverkusen have um, already played three Bundesliga games and already scored four goals twice. Um, they're a very well coached team. We've scored uh, six goals twice, Alan. We've scored well, six goals yeah, twice. not against Borussia Mönchengladbach, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> away from home. Uh, well, I think it was Augsburg, Augsburg away and Borussia Mönchengladbach at home. Um, so they're already you know, already started this the season strongly. They have got a new manager. So uh, the, the the Dutch manager Bosch has gone to Lyon, uh, who, who who took them up to you know high position in the Bundesliga last year. Um, they've got um, Gerardo Sioni, who uh, had been manager of um, Grasshoppers uh, and Lucerne, and uh, young young boys, I think. Who young boys are again? They they had the first ever foray into the Champions League on the back of his efforts, and they're a team who again are one of the sort of pioneering data driven clubs. So you know you can expect a team that's going to not just set out to play the way they they. Always play. Expect a team to look at Celtic closely and set up in a very intelligent way, and to have very powerful resources to give us a lot of problems. Having said all that, I don't think Postecoglou will go gung ho. Um, my evidence for that is he played uh, the way he played against um, Michelin when went down to ten men. He, he made a very pragmatic call about the team shape, uh, and, and on the face of it, it was quite aggressive in pushing. Um, Rogic uh, to play more as a striker, but actually, what he did was he made the team very, very compact, and and actually, you know, it was very difficult to break us down from from, from when we were down ten to ten men, and then against Altmar as well. I think the way that we saw the game out at two 0 at Celtic Park was was actually you know pretty impressive in terms of we sat we we we, we stopped we we pressed far more intelligently and less frequently. We sat back in more of a medium block, and again. We were compact and tight, and they really didn't have a shot after the 67th minute of any any note. So I take those two things as being a sign that he he will adjust. Uh, he won't it won't be all guns blazing, but he will send those teams out to win those games. James, do you want to come in on that? Yeah, I, I hope so. I hope what Alan is describing is going to be the case because I I fear the alternative if. Um, and, and I'm not sure if pragmatism is the right word, but maybe more reserved. <laughs> um, so within the context, I, I, I don't expect him to pull a, a, a Rogers Barcelona where he goes in and just plays five, four, one and uh, you know, parks the bus um, which, you know, again, I think a lot of people criticized Rogers for not being pragmatic. And then <laughs> when he tried that once we got absolutely annihilated. Um, so 
I, I, sh I would be surprised if we do that. But I think like Alan has said, uh, I hope there are some tweaks. And I, for me, probably, and I've done some research on this over the break here, um, some of the metrics, the more advanced metrics on pressing are suggesting what is commonsensical, which is we're not very good at it yet. Um, so if you look at counter-pressing and uh, pressing data, um, we're just not accomplishing the amount of um, possession regains, for example, that would be normally expected given the intensity with which we're pressing, right? So we're we're get, we're having a lot of the out a lot of the energy being expended, a lot of the risk created in transition as a result of being aggressive in press, but we're not having a commensurate amount of kind of reward um, relative to all of that effort and risk that we're taking. Mm -hmm. So. As I always say, that's more of a problem as you scale up in competition, uh, where teams can have the talent and the speed and the pace, um, and and being well coached in order to take advantage of that. So I, I'm worried that if we go in guns blazing against, let's say, a Leverkusen, and we have we're not we don't improve enough in uh, our pressing and counter pressing, and we do it anyway, that could turn into some pretty rough nights. I think. Uh, whereas if we maybe go more into a mid block and are more selective and smart about our pressing, as Alan said that we were as, as but we did those from positions of strength and mm -hmm. kind of hanging on. Um, I think it'll be interesting from the get go, whether or not we set up that way at to, to begin or um, because I think particularly with Leverkusen um, better. So a little bit lesser degree, but still, you know, they're, they're, they're a good side, but not quite as attacking and, hmm. and a pressing team as Leverkusen are. Yeah. Uh, and we can't write off Ferenc Faros. I mean, Ferenc Faros uh, got through Slavia Praha 2-1 uh, in aggregate to get to the knockout round of the Champions League. And based, I think they lost on penalties to young boys. Uh, that's what I'm saying. It was 3-2 and then 2-3. Um, oh, no, I'm sorry. It was 6-4 in aggregate then. Yeah, it was 6-4 in aggregate. So it's not like, you know, that they were in that tie against, Young boys for them to score four goals against young boys. Yeah. Um, so you know, it, it, it it's it's going to be very interesting because that that's um, whether or not what what where does uh, Ange decide to kind of place his bets in some of these structural deficiencies that we're going to have? Does he does he go with a McCarthy at the six and kind of accept what that's going to do to build up play, um, or does he go with McGregor there and then try to figure something out as Whoever's going to play that second eight along with Turnbull, I, I, I have no idea. Yeah, <laughs> or or whether he goes with two sixes and um, well. and a ten. Um, but there again, you you're setting yourself up for transition issues big time. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's going to be fascinating and it's going to come quick. I mean, I think as soon as um, we play Saturday the, next week, right? I think we have the first uh, we go to. Um, the way. Yeah. Real best. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. We'll, have to, yeah. We'll, we'll have to wait too long to get some answers here. Well, I think that's the beauty of these international breaks is that you actually, for players who aren't away on them, you can't actually prepare them for these kind of games. Um, but yeah, the, the pragmatic approach is an interesting one because I think there is a common mi misconception that pragmatism equals 10 men behind the ball and right. just holding out the fort, where, whereas you, you can be pra pragmatic and positive you don't have to be completely negative you can take the game to the the teams and also be pragmatic about your approach it's just uh, certain ways of how you you set up the team so i can imagine it's going to be 
something in between. I can't see Celtic pressing every single ball against Leverkusen, but when they get the opportunity, I think they will. And I think they'll play largely with Kyogo. I can imagine Kyogo is going to take up a lot of wide positions against uh, Leverkusen in particular to get them on the counter-attack with his pace um, as opposed to his usual inside runs and behind the defence. So, look, there's a lot of things that we're, we we won't actually know about Ange just because of the way that you know he, the J-League is just not really in our, our mindset and we haven't really seen um, too much of him at this level to see what he's actually going to do. We do have a good few questions on the defense. I'm going to lump them all in together because they're largely covering similar enough topics. So for Lauren Hope on Twitter says that they can you give us some tactical solutions between now and January to solve the issues of the gaps between Hart and his backline while still playing Ange's high intensity style. Burnt Toast said, how are we going to get past, uh, how are we going to pass it about the back with Starfeld and Hart who are uncomfortable with the ball defeat? Teams with any sense will target them. And then Kev Boy asks, is a left-footed central defender key to us addressing the one-sided attacks when building up? Starfelt and Welsh seem to never seem to open up their body and look to go down the right. McGregor receiving the ball, facing his own goal, tends to uh, turn on his favourite side. So that's sort of three different uh, questions about the defence. One about the, the way that we uh, pass the ball out. One about how... Uh, we position our, uh, our key players and one about the issues with the defense of the defense, essentially the defending style of the defense. So which one of you wants to start with what question there? <laughs> I'll have a go about the, the, the last one because I can remember it. So that <laughs> was, my, my memory's fading. For podcast listeners, that was the question <laughs> about left-footed central defender. Left-footed central defender key to opening up our one-sided attacks. Yeah, that, that, was, that was a lot of words. <laughs> so I, to, so I, th- I think, I, I, I don't know if it goes back even before this, but if you think back to probably um, when Kieran Tierney got into the team and certainly when Rodgers bought Sinclair, Celtic had been a very left-sided biased team in terms of how they play. And, and I think it's still largely true today, mainly due to the personnel that we've had. So um, when 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 the when the alignment was Tierney with McGregor next to him and then Sinclair and then you had Dembele tended to drop slightly to the left and then Edward certainly dropped into the left. You had a lot of you know, players that wanted to get on the ball and players that you wanted to get on the ball um, on that left side, whereas on the right side you tended to have Lustig who didn't tend to bomb on and was more likely to to, to, to tuck in one and shuffle everyone round so that Tierney was then free. And then Forrest, who was more of a out-and-out winger versus Sinclair, who was always looking to cut in, and therefore that freed up space wide for someone on the left to 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 make to make that run. So you'd more like to get an overload on the left. So you're, the ball would naturally, um, you know, be, be be going in that direction. And since then, you know, McGregor is a ball magnet. I mean, McGregor demands the ball, and and you want him on the ball, and he tends to. If you look at heat map of McGregor, it's, it does tend to be that left half space if you, if you if you drew a line down the half space between the fullback and the center back and the the um, the you know the inside midfielder through to the center circle that's kind of mcgregor's zone of operation more often than not so i think that's the main reason and for historical reasons of personnel and now we're in a situation where you know abada is is, prob- is again one of these players who's, who, who doesn't look like he's going to get a lot of touches in the game 
It's just not his his nature to be coming back, linking play. You know, he wants to get on it in ex, in, in dangerous areas, and then he'll do something explosive, and and you'll get a few of those in the game. Uh, whereas, you know, on the left, again, we've got players who are probably more comfortable taking more, more touches. And again, we, we've had the right-back issue. It'll be interesting having Juranovic Gir- now. Now, that might do something to actually balance the team out a little bit more. But we don't know yet because it's another thing we've yet to learn. <laughs> so in terms of going back to the original question, which is if you had a left-sided centre-back, would that open up the play? I don't think it would have solved or changed any of those dynamics that I've just mentioned, whether the centre-back had been uh, left-footed or right-footed. In fact, a right-footed centre-back would be generally shoveling the ball out to the left more and accentuating that. Um, a left-footed centre-back obviously would would be maybe coming inside. Um, I, I, I'm... I'm kind of. I know some people are really passionate about this and think that you must have a left-sided centre back and a right-sided centre back. And my kind of sort of natural feng shui might kind of instinctively say that that's a good idea, but I don't. I don't know that I've got any data to back that up per se. But I'd be interested if anyone's done done any research on is a left lefty righty combination better than than not. I suspect having two good players is better than, than having a lefty yeah. and a righty for the sake of it. I, I, uh, I don't. Yeah. I don't care. Yeah. I don't. I don't yeah. care if he's left sided yeah. or not. Um, all I want to know is it can he play football? And I mean, put it this way: he, like, it, like you can have a left sided donkey. It just, it just really depends <laughs> how good they are playing two footed, football. Really. Even yeah, yeah. <laughs> the best best combinations we've had in the last, you know, sort of uh, since I've been collecting stats, Denier and Van Dyke both right footed, uh, Iron Julian both right footed. So hmm. honestly, I have a preconceived uh, notion about left footers. I, I I very rarely trust them, depending on who they are. Oh. They they so if no, there's a there's a a theory that I have no evidence to back up. So you guys will murder me for it, but. The left footers generally who are good with their left foot, they strike the ball much nicer. A left a left footed goal is much nicer to look at. But generally X, X nice. Le, gen, X X nice, yeah. Generally left footers are way more awkward on the ball than right footers. That's that's my un uh, unbackupable uh, opinion. That's the yeah, I don't know where to go with that end. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I think we're on the wrong show now. <laughs> yes, well, left hand left handers and their poor penmanship. That's the yeah, topic. Well, that, that's true. That's true. Then we see that that is that's why people come for the expert opinion that you guys bring. People come for the the notions that I bring to the show. <laughs> the irrational bigotry from against left footers from yourself. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly yeah. what they're coming coming to me for. Right, we'll uh, we'll crack through the other two questions yeah. about the defense, James. Do you want to take one of them? So you have the issue of the gaps between Hart and the backline, and then you have the issue of passing with Starfelt Hart being uncomfortable on the ball. Yeah, so I, I think they're interrelated, and I think it also interrelates with um, what McCarthy's role is going to be relative to uh, to uh, uh, McGregor. So, um, I've talked, I've talked about that. These could kind of pile up on a risk basis. You know, if you, if you put McCarthy in and you've got Starfelt and let's say, uh, uh, Carter Vickers as your center backs potentially, or Welsh in for one of those two, either, either way. And with Hart being your, your keeper, um, I think that, that kind of, uh, diamond four, so to speak, uh, is not ideal for the high line. It's not ideal for quick one, two touch passing and build up play out of the back. So there's going to be some inherent um, issues that I'm not sure are manageable, meaning that it's it's basically um, 
picking the poison that you're going to to, to, to live with. So I, I don't know if you guys saw it, but um, there was a, a, a video that was going around today. I think it was from this week. I think it was under 21's Faroe Islands scored against uh, France. Oh, yeah, they and, drew that game. Yeah, yeah. And um, the way they scored was their uh, France's keeper was way out, you know, where a sweeper keeper would be close to the center line. Uh, to the circle, the center circle, and made a really bad pass. And the guy intercepted it and just shot from there. And it just dribbled over. I mean, it barely made it to the goal line. But that that gave me visions of what a Joe Hart out at the center circle line might look like <laughs> um, if he's out there with any frequency trying to, you know, play the ball as a kind of, you know, sweeper keeper, so to speak. So, you know, I, I don't think he should be going out there like that. I think he should be reserved and back. That's probably the lesser of the two evils um, with him staying closer to his box where he's more comfortable. And uh, that's just going to create that space. So maybe he gets better at coming for the ball. Like he made the mistake against Alkmaar and didn't. Hopefully he learns from that. Um, hopefully the communication gets better between the center backs and him with those lobs that are going to keep coming in that space. And um you know, hopefully we just get better at dealing with it with a little bit of practice as teams keep targeting it. Um, but I think it's probably just going to be there. It's it, there's mm. there's going to be some inheritance, uh, inherent issues with it. And, you know, uh, hopefully it just doesn't compound to the point where it turns into big problems, um, you know, like a red card or something, you know, really bad where it ends up costing us points against a team that we sh- shouldn't be losing points to. Um, so... Yeah, I guess the concern is with that gap in between the defense and the keeper is that teams will identify that and essentially get the ball out the wing and just knock balls over the top every single time and just create as much chaos as they possibly can in between a defense that aren't used to playing with each other so far. And, and that's that's part of why I didn't, I, I don't, again, I, I don't pretend to uh, have watched him a ton. I've seen him play for the U.S. some. Um, uh, Carter Vickers, but I think he's okay pace wise for a center back, but he's certainly not fast for a center back. You know, he's not anywhere in the neighborhood of an ire. Um, so, you know, I, I, I would have liked to have seen that last piece coming in being a center back with some pace um, to complement either a Starfelt, you know, cause I I've said this since we signed Starfelt. I mean, it's like put a hit, put him next to Julian playing that high line, and, and uh, you know, it, there, there's not going to be any uh, uh, races in the 100-yard dash between the two of them that, that uh, break the stopwatch. So, um, you know, we just don't really have any pay. I think probably Welsh might be uh, the most agile of the group in, in recovery speed. Um, and he's not anything, you know, great shakes in that regard. So I just, mm-hmm. again, I think it's just going to be something that we live with. Do you want sorry, to come in on that, Alan? Yeah, sorry, Ender. I just wanted to, just going back to the previous conversation we had about you know, pragmatism and well, Postacogli changes approach. I think he already is uh, to, to count to, to basically um, try and reduce risk in those very areas. If you look at how Hart, you know, Hart clearly isn't <laughs> coming out very far, and, and that creates another issue. So you've either got to drop the defence five yards to try and reduce that gap, because I don't think you, you're going to get 34-year-old Joe Hart to change fundamentally the way he plays to that degree. I mean, he's, he's doing okay with his passing. He averages 28 completed open play passes in, per 90 minutes, and he gives away just under five. I mean, that's probably a lot more effective 
than Gordon was, to be honest. And Gordon did a pretty good job of adapting his game under Rogers to play that way. So I think he, I think he can adapt to a point, uh, but it's within the the, the, the structure of you, you're not going to be standing on the halfway line or anywhere near that because his recovery pace is just not not isn't going to be nothing like. Mm. So I think I think we're going to have to come up with a compromise. I think we already are coming up with a compromise. We may just, may just need to drop that line a little bit back. And as for Starfield, I mean, it might surprise you to know. He averages more open play passes than any other player by 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 eight, 60, uh, 73 passes. And he loses the ball through his passing less than any other player. He gives it away just over two times. So again, there's a, there's a trade-off there between his relatively safe passing. He's not taking risks with his passing. He's giving it, he's not trying to break multiple lines. For example, you know, at Ibrox, he was very serviceable at getting past the front three. And he could get it into a midfielder or he get it into a fullback, you know, and, and he racks up plenty of those types of passes. And to be honest, that, that's that's okay, but you're not going to get that range of passing. So mm. I think, and the other thing about Starfell is what was very interesting is away in Altmar and he shifted from the, the left centre-back to right centre-back. to, And I think it was to protect him, get him away from a, a, a book a buklal. On that side, and that's where the danger came down. They were they, they had a new a new left back making his debut, and uh, I can't remember who they brought in on the left. Oh, they, they had, sorry, it was the other way around. They're basically trying to protect him from uh, I think it was Larson, Carlson. wasn't it? Yeah, Carlson. Carlson yeah. Sorry, Carlson. Yeah. yeah, and then and then at Ibrox, uh, they flipped it again because to try and keep him away from from Kent. So the, uh, he's he's being protected. As I said to you uh, in the last show, he's being protected by Postecoglou. They're trying to build his confidence because it has taken a bit of a uh, a kicking. So. That to me again is evidence that the manager is is adapting and trying to find ways to fix problems. He's not just saying it's up to you to sort out, kick him yeah. out of the pitch and, and get on with it. There's more mm. going on here. Well, and I, I think that's a that's a great point, Alan. And it, to me, again, it, it introduces just a different, you know, as I as I've always uh, said, you know, ri- risk tends not to get eliminated; it just morphs. So if, if the risk is inherent, meaning that, uh, you know, if the pieces don't fit together, then you can kind of change where that risk lies, but you can't eliminate it. So right. to you your point, yeah. yeah, you might be able to reduce it. Normally you just change the shape of it and then you might change the frequency of it. But so, for, so for example, uh, let, let's, and I agree with you, you know, with the idea of maybe moving the line back five yards, but that then also um, might invite on more pressure and Starfelt invites on more pressure with his safe passing, right? So, cause he's not really taking that blind breaking pass to cut open. So he's doing the simple passes. And again, if you throw McCarthy into that mix, instead of McGregor, um, I can see scenarios where we're caught 10 to 15 yards deeper in build up play and teams are just, you know, again, if they have the athleticism and the quality, just see like, you know, like sharks in the, with blood and water, uh, just moving that forward, forward, forward. Mm. And, and that, so that's a different manifestation of the risk. Um, but it's situational. And again, this is where, what I always talk about is for a lot of our opposition domestically, you know, most of this isn't going to matter. Um, Cause if they try to press us that aggressively, if, if Ross County comes in Sunday or Saturday and tries to f- aggressively press us forward, the likelihood is that we're going to absolutely carve them open. Um, but, you know, when we go and play Leverkusen, totally different um, kettle of fish. Mm. Well, another sort of issue with that safe passing is the over-reliance on Cal McGregor plays into that because 
I mean, if he's the guy that's always receiving the ball from the midfield and has to do something with it, if he gets injured, then where do you go from there? And also, you know, you can bring Cal McGregor into the game in other ways by, you know, doing what Christopher Iyer did, carrying the ball out, break, beating the first man, breaking the first line, and then suddenly there's space opening up in front of Cal McGregor to run onto the ball as opposed to getting it and having to turn. And I suppose that addresses the the question that came in about his left-sidedness. Just to finish up, there is one question from Mike Coast, who is asking a question of James, and James is the only one of us that can actually answer this question as far <laughs> as I know. Um, are there lessons to be learned from the American NCAA programs that consistently perform and recruit above their relative size? Gonzaga basketball and Boise? Boise? Yeah, Boise State. Boise State football that can be applied to Celtics' future performances in Europe. So can you explain that firstly and then answer the sure. question? Because I've I've got no fucking clue what that guy's asking. Yeah. So but both of those are uh, universities that have developed very successful programs, um, even though they're not in major conferences. So you could think of them, the analogy I think that the questioner is asking, it's kind of like, you know, um, the Scottish League being outside of the big five. You know, so we're Celtics almost like a uh, Boise State or a Gonzaga, which Gonzaga was in the NCAA basketball finals this past March, for example. So they don't play in one of the premier conferences where they have the big money and, you know, they pay their coaches four million dollars a year, that kind of thing. So 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 they've been able to build this very successful program um, as, as Boise State has and just doing things a little differently. Um, I think the analogies that is, is interesting, I think. Um, so, some of the things that I would say is optimization, and this is kind of a general key co- concept, which is how do you make the best decisions and optimize the resources you have relative to your competitive situation, right? So how does how has Gonzaga done that? Uh, they've recruited a lot of foreign players. So they've kind of built this little niche where they've, they bring guys in from Eastern Europe. They bring guys in from Africa. Uh, where, you know, your Kentuckys and your North Carolinas and your Duke, you know, kind of the traditional powers in college basketball, you know, their bread and butter is the best U.S. players um, and and basically giving them a pathway to the NBA very quickly. So what's happened is uh, college basketball players, the best ones usually only come for one or two years and then they go pro because the money's so ridiculous, right? So the people that Gonzaga's recruiting are you know the the seven foot one Lithuanian dude who's going to be there for four years, mm-hmm. and uh, they might come in a little raw, but um, they coach them up and they're at the, the university for four years. And by that third and fourth year, you've now got a really good player relative to what you could have you know because you're never going to compete for that what they call five star recruit that's going to Kentucky or Duke. You know Gonzaga is very rarely going to be able to get that player, uh, so they've been very smart about how they you know, recruit and um, develop players and and getting them to stick around for, for three or four years. Boise State, I think, is a little bit different because um, football is a little bit, American football is a little different. What they did is basically innovate um, an offense. So the way that they went about, they were one of the early teams to adopt what they call spread offense. So it's almost like, um, you know, throwing all of your players out wide and just throwing the ball around like lunatics. Um, so using space to their advantage, using quickness. And so they, they um, you know, uh, being very creative in their play calling, taking risks. Um, so they've been able to do it in a, in a different way, which is just being smarter. Um, use, I, I think they've been 
pretty um, on the forefront of, of analytics relative to that. And they're just as happy winning 65-50, which in, in, in American football is an insane score. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've figured out a strategy. It's like, okay, we don't care if we give up 50 points because we'll score 60. Uh, and, and that kind of is Ange ball in a way. Um, and, and, you know, for the most part, they've started to lose a little bit of that because people have caught up, meaning that, uh, that kind of what they call spread offense has become a lot more, you know, they, they started that back in the mid knots, like 2005, 2006, 2007. So they were very early on the forefront of that. Now it's become quite popular. So they've, they've lost some of that strategic edge as, as a result. The coolest thing about Boise State, other than the fact that they're in Idaho and no one knows where Idaho is, uh, is that they play on a field that's a plastic pitch, so to speak, or an AstroTurf uh, field that is blue. So if you ever, if you ever want to tune in and watch a game, um, their, field, their, their turf is actually blue. Yes, there's some there's some that would go down that road. I think. <laughs> are there um, are there are there pundits in the uh, American football scene that always give out about the the state of the plastic pitches in Boise State and they have to get rid of them because yeah. can you do it can you do it in Boise on a wet Tuesday night? Yeah, exactly. For, and <laughs> it does plastic. get wet and cold in Boise. I can tell yeah. you that. I have no idea where Idaho is. That that's all interesting though. There's, there's uh, <laughs> Apart from the American football aspect, it, it's all it's all fairly interesting, you know. Um, there is the the only issue I would arise uh, with, uh, with with that or raise with that rather is <laughs> Celtic are not a progressive club at board level, so that is where you're running not into at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the angle about what you were saying about recruitment, right? I mean, is purely synonymous. I mean, in a post-Brexit world, there's new angles to be pursued around which markets are now accessible that didn't didn't used to be, um, and then that's that's what's what Celtic need to start exploring and really digging into. Obviously, at the same time as overhauling recruitment and the way that that, that whole operation runs, definitely. And and, yeah. I, and I've actually, you know, because you know, we get accused of being uh, uh, spreadsheet geeks and all this stuff, and the stat heads and you know, um, focusing only on numbers. And I, I, I've said this consistently and I a hundred percent believe it. Um, the people, the leadership, the culture is the most important part. So, you know, Boise state were able to create this kind of, um, competitive advantage that was durable for a period of time, but you're all, you know, in these highly competitive environments, people are always copycatting, People are always kind of, uh, you know, figuring out what you're doing. So it, it's having smart people that are able to innovate and stay ahead of the curve that's important and, and building yeah. a culture that enables that um, because, you know, these things are cyclical otherwise. And if, you're, you know, you can continue to invest in you know, data and, 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 and um, you know, a machine learning and all these various things, but so is everyone else. They're going to catch up. And, you know, it's, it's like a never ending race as far as trying to stay ahead of the competition. So th- there's no, there's not really any such thing as a durable advantage, I think, other than building a culture that's um, going to, you know, be perpetually paranoid and always looking to innovate and stay ahead of the competition and, yeah. and, to, and to do it in a kind of vicious way. I mean, that you, um, you know, it's part of the, one of the ways that the New England Patriots were so good for so long for 20 years, other than having Tom Brady, which was a huge part of it, which was they were mercilessly vicious. Mm. You know, there was no sentimentality when a player got older, even if they had helped them gone. win three or four Super Bowls. Goodbye. 
Well, <laughs> look at uh, look at Alex Ferguson at Manchester United, and right. I mean the the guy who always gives out about me referencing the Premier League in this in this podcast will come back at me. But uh, Brian Robson, captain Manchester United, gone. Roy Keane when he was done, gone. Peter Schmeichel, gone. He was not afraid to get rid of key players if it meant that he could finally revitalize the team in the way that he needed to do. And I, I guess he he's an old guard in a way now that the way the things are done. But it, I mean, he was in full control and he did what he needed to do. I think the the key point I would use to point towards the culture not being correct for this sort of innovative uh, thinking in Celtic at the minute is the fact that Lawwell decided that after the 10 in a row is when things were start going to change. That's when he was going to step down. That's when they were going to get a, a director of football. That's when they were going to revitalize the scouting system after the 10 in a row was done, as opposed to getting it done in the right way and having these people in place to, to continue to build on it. So I guess it's, it, it, it might change over the next couple of years. Hopefully it does change, but I think that's where my skepticism around it would come. And if people don't like our data, they come. They come to the podcast for my hot takes on the left-footed players. I mean, That's right. <laughs> so I mean, exactly. all, all, all we can go on on that one, and uh, is you know you have to look at Mackay and where he came from and what he did at, at Scottish rugby. You know, he he did not have accountants in charge of the departments. He had a marketing person in charge of marketing. You know, he had a salesperson in charge of sales. He had a rugby expert in charge of recruitment and scouting plans, and and that's that's how you do it. You give people. You give you find talented people, and you give them the authority and the mandate to do their job properly, and you give them mm-hmm. tools to do the job properly, and and then you you support them one hundred percent, and then you hold them to account, and that's how you drive excellence. And and Mackay has got a track record for doing that in a sporting environment. So I you know I'd definitely be up for giving him a chance to instill that culture at Celtic. Yeah, well, we will we will live in hope that that happens. This was the first Q and A of the Huddle Breakdown. I think it was a massive success, if I do say so myself. <laughs> Uh, we will actually have a game to look forward to and look back on the Ross County game this weekend and the Real Betis game next week. So that's what next week's show is going to be. If you want to get that, you have to subscribe to the YouTube channel below, subscribe to the podcast network at Huddle Breakdown and follow us on Twitter at Huddle Breakdown or The Breakdown Inc. James, Alan, thanks very much. Thank you. Have thanks a good week, guys. All yeah, right. Thanks you. for your question, folks. We'll chat to you later. Good luck. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.